We're going to be today in Matthew 16, and we'll also be in Luke 22. I, I grew up in a church where our hymn book was called the All-American Hymnal. And uh, usually during the first song every week, the uh, side door of the church would open, and Brother Gerald would come in with that little wood board, and he would hang it over on the side. And on the board, it would have the, the little numbers that said, uh, at Sunday school attendance today. Sunday school attendance last week. Uh, we took offering in Sunday school, and it'd say offering today. And then it had attendance last year. And uh, so every, every week as a kid, I would just sit there and wait for that board to come up because I thought that was the, the coolest thing. And our worship order, you know, we would sing a fast hymn. Then we would welcome all the guests. Then we'd sing a slower hymn. Then we would give announcements. After the announcements, we might sing one more hymn. And then the choir would sing the choir special. And then after the choir would go down, the lady that had too much vibrato in her voice would come up to sing a solo. And she would sing, people need the Lord. And, and you know, we'd all enjoy that and we'd clap. And then after she went down, the Southern Gospel Quartet would come up. And uh, Brother Norris and the quartet, they would sing something like, moving up to glory land. And, and then after they finished singing, the preacher would get up and... and uh, and he would preach, and then at the end of the sermon, you always knew how good the sermon was by how many people came forward to pray. And so that's how you measured how good the sermon was that particular week, and people would come forward and pray. And we would do this. We would do this on Sunday morning. We would do it on Sunday night, and then we'd come back on Wednesday night, and we'd do the same thing every single week. How many, anybody else recognize that church from your childhood? Did anybody else grow up in, in that church? That was just how I, I was raised. Those of you who are newer to the DFW area, uh, you may not realize this, but 40 years ago here in our community, it seemed like everyone went to church, and, and we went to church every, every Sunday. I remember graduating Keller High uh, back a while ago. Um, you know, our, our class song was a Christian song. DFW was the bull rider's buckle on the Bible belt. That, that's what DFW was. I mean, we were right there in the center of the Bible Belt, and everybody just went to church. The Apostle Peter grew up in a community like that. He grew up in a fishing community called Bethsaida that was in a northern province called Galilee. And where Peter grew up, everyone went to synagogue every week. Everyone believed in God. If you had children... You sent them to the Jewish version of Awana every single Sunday. Once a year, everybody would go down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and that was a time to really celebrate but also see family. The community gathered on Friday nights for football, I don't know. Uh, on Saturday, they would rest because it was the Sabbath. And then on Sunday, you'd go fishing. That's just what you did. And while you fished, uh, you talked about how you hated the Romans, you didn't like tax collectors, and pretty much all Gentiles. So that's how Peter grew up. But one of the things that Peter discovered as he was growing up in this highly religious, highly spiritual community is there was also a lot of corruption. There were a lot of people that were leveraging belief in God for some type of earthly agenda. You had the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they were very, very strict, and they were traditional. And they also had a tendency to 
look down on people. It's nothing wrong with being conservative in your values or being traditional in your habits, but the Pharisees took it to the point where they looked down on people all the time, and so you found Jesus continually sparring with the Pharisees. And then you had this other religious group that was prominent at that time called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were really into health and wealth. They didn't believe in the supernatural, and so they didn't believe in spirits or the resurrection of the dead, life after death. They kind of had their motto of your best life now. And then you had another group that was in the scene, on the scene, called the Herodians. And what the Herodians did was they would mix politics and religion. And so they blended the two into some type of religious belief. And then you had a group called the Zealots. Now, the Zealots, they were the radicals. They used faith as an excuse for violence. And so the Zealots would actually, at times, commit acts of terrorism. They would sometimes take out people they considered to be traitors or Roman soldiers. They would do things that caused multiple deaths, all in the name of faith. And then periodically, in the environment where Peter grew up, there would be random false prophets that would come onto the scene. And they usually had some new theology that nobody had ever thought of before, and they would draw a crowd, and they would have about 15 minutes of great popularity and fame, and then they would just be gone as quickly as they arrived. And so Peter, growing up, probably had a lot of confusion because he had all these different people in the community that were leveraging faith in God for their own benefit. But then Peter ran into Jesus. And there was something different about Jesus. In fact, uh, he was called to be a part of the Twelve. And how Jesus called him to be a part of the Twelve was pretty cool. It's actually in Luke chapter 5. And one day Jesus is preaching. And so he commandeers one of Peter's fishing boats. And he goes out into the lake to preach his sermon. You see, they didn't have sound systems, so go out in a boat, then the water could be a natural sound system. And when Jesus finishes his sermon, he calls out to Peter, who was in one of the other boats out on the lake, and he says, hey, Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your fishing nets for a catch. So Peter replies, Master, we have worked hard all night long, and we haven't caught anything. Anybody ever fished all night and had no luck? Yeah, Karen, you've done that before. It can, be, it can be rather discouraging. And then somebody tells you, you're a professional fisherman, that's happened to you. And someone tells you, hey, uh, let down your nets again. And so he, he does it. And when he did this, he caught a great number of fish all the way to the point where their nets began to tear. And so they signaled to their partners from the other boat to help them come get all these fish because they were about to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, here was his reaction. He goes up to Jesus He falls on his knees and he says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. Just go away from me, Lord. I'm not worthy. And Jesus responds to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching people. And then here's how Peter responds. He brings his boat to land. And the Bible says he left everything and followed him. He left his entire life behind in order to follow 
Jesus. And so Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and there's quite a buzz that surrounds Jesus. People are are fascinated by his miracles. They're fascinated by his teachings. But one of the big questions that begins to arise is, who is Jesus? Because all these false prophets had come onto the scene. There were all these other people that were teaching about God. And here comes Jesus. Who is this guy? Now, for 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out, what do you do with Jesus? If you are intellectually honest to any degree, you have to answer the question of, who is Jesus? Because his impact upon society is, is like no other. First of all, people live their entire lives to follow him. Most of you are here today because you are, fo- how many of you are followers of Jesus? Okay. This guy lived 2,000 years ago. You got up, braved the cold, the rain. You came to church today because of this man, Jesus. He, he never held public office, didn't sit on a throne, didn't have an army. He didn't have a massive amount of earthly wealth. He didn't create an invention. He didn't have a discovery. He wasn't a famous artist. He wasn't an economist, he wasn't an educator, he wasn't a lawyer, a scientist, an architect. And yet, this man, Jesus, and his teaching impact nearly every area of culture and society. Government, peace, family, education, law, art, architecture, and healthcare. History is marked by the message of this man, Jesus. It's undeniable, and so at some point... Everyone has to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Who do I think that he is? Well, if you're Muslim, then Jesus was a prophet. If you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, then Jesus was a great moralist. If you're a Mormon, then Jesus was a savior and an example of what you and I can be. If you're a naturalist, then Jesus was a champion of love and peace. But who is he if you're a Christian? Who's Jesus to a Christian? Lord and Savior. We believe that he's the Son of God. We believe that he is our Lord and Savior. So when we arrive at Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and the disciples are at their retreat. They often went to Caesarea Philippi for some time of relaxation. And he calls the disciples together and he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? Hey, Mason, what's the word on the street? Hey, Steve, what's the word on the street? Hey, hey, Karen, what's the word on the street? Is he? What are people saying about me? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so they respond. They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're a great prophet. You're Elijah. Or you are Jeremiah who is, who is prophesying. And then Jesus says, okay, but, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And up jumps Simon Peter. I love Simon Peter. Never in doubt, often wrong, Simon Peter, right? Okay, he always had something to say. And and Simon Peter jumps up and says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And at this point in Peter's life story, the music crescendos and you want to applaud. And you're like, you've got it, Peter. You've got it figured out. Because Peter had realized that Jesus was the long-awaited anointed one, the Messiah. You see, when Peter was growing up as a little boy in that village there, that fishing village there in Galilee, he was told that one day the anointed one of God would come 
And whenever the anointed one, the Messiah, would come, he would pour out the Holy Spirit on all who believe. And so Peter, just like everybody in his community, he looked forward to the day that the Messiah would come. And just like Moses had delivered the people out of Egyptian bondage, when the Messiah came, he would deliver us out of sinful bondage and we would be free because the Messiah was going to come. Yet the Jewish people were under Roman domination. And so they began to reduce the Messiah down to a political leader. And so that became the problem. You see, Peter was wrestling with something. He, he, he believed Jesus to be a Messiah, yet Peter's vision for a Messiah at this point in his life didn't involve the cross and the empty tomb. Now, to be fair, Jesus kept telling him. He kept telling the disciples, hey, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. They went up to Jerusalem because it was a mountain hike. We're going up to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to die, but then I'm going to come back to life the third day. All right, you've heard about all these false teachers. Jesus says, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to hideously kill me. You're going to see me die, but I'm going to rise from the dead. By the way, whenever someone dies publicly and then rises again, you might want to listen to that guy, right? And so Jesus says, this is what's about to happen. And if you read the story, there's actually a moment where Peter calls Jesus aside. And he's like, Jesus, can you just be a bit more positive? Okay, No one one really wants to hear about this death and dying Messiah? I mean, how are they going to follow a a death and dying Messiah against the legions of Rome? And Jesus almost, or Peter almost scolds Jesus and says, quit talking about all this death stuff. So, when Judas arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane with his band of temple guards, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss on the cheek, Peter was ready to fight. He's all right, let's get it on. But how does Jesus respond in Luke 22, verse 49? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And then one of them, other gospels tell us that this one of them is Peter, one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. Put your swords up. You shouldn't have been smuggling them into a prayer meeting anyway. <laughs> Put your swords up, guys. No more of this. And then he touches the man's ear and heals him. And then they seized Jesus, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. But don't miss this next part. Jesus is being led away to trial. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Now, at this point in Peter's story, the music is no longer at a crescendo. Now, Peter's world has fallen into complete chaos. You see, three times that night, Jesus had already rebuked him. The first was in the upper room when Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, and Peter was like, no, you're not touching my feet. And Jesus was like, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can have anything to do with me. And Peter was like, okay, well, wash my feet, my head, my back, whatever you want to wash. And then the second time was when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus kept telling them, stay awake and pray, Peter, that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus would go off and pray and he kept coming back finding Peter snoring. And then the third time was what we just read. 
Peter's like ready to fight, ready to start the war, and Jesus says, put your sword up. That's not what I'm about. Now, on top of this, Peter is probably furious at Judas. How can this guy walked with us? He was one of ours. How can he do this? And Jesus wouldn't let me fight. Now he's in chains. Now he's on trial. And somewhere, somewhere else swirling around inside of him, I think there was a confusion. Everything that he had learned growing up in Galilee about what it was supposed to be like was now colliding with reality. And so for a few short moments in Peter's life, he descended into a very, very dark place. Look with me in verse 55. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. And when a servant saw him sitting in the firelight and looked closely at him, she said, This man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I I don't know him. And after a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with him since he is also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. You see, Jesus had told Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. And here he denies him three times. And then in verse 61, the Lord turns and looks at Peter. So Peter's in the courtyard. Jesus is on trial there in the house. And he denies knowing Jesus three times And there's this moment where Jesus turns and looks at him and their eyes lock and Peter's heart is cut. And the Bible says in verse 62 that he went outside and he began to weep bitterly. That means he wept with a remorse. He he felt a guilt within his soul. I promise you, there will come a moment in your life when what you learned in Galilee collides with your reality. There will come a moment somewhere in your Christian journey where you'll be confused and you're not sure what's real and you're searching for it. I remember for me, it was about a year after we got married. We, uh, grad- I graduated seminary. And, you know, when you graduate seminary, you know everything, right? So I graduated seminary we moved down to Austin, Texas. Keep Austin weird. That's where we were headed. And we got ourselves a one-bedroom apartment. Stacey, we thought we had arrived, didn't we, when we moved into that one-bedroom apartment. We were like, man, this is awesome. This is awesome. And so the church that I had grown up in, it just seemed so perfect and sincere. From my seat in the crowd, everything just kind of was just good. But then we had Pastor Lash's rookie year. <laughs> and I, I discovered that sometimes whenever you try to lead, most people are great, but there's some people that might try to use you or abuse you or even accuse you. And church life can sometimes be like a march through the swamp. It's not always, it's not always easy. By the way, If you want to be criticized in life, let me tell you how to be a criticized person. You ready? Do something. 
Just do something. Try to lead anything, do something, I promise you, you'll be criticized. In fact, we now live in a world where everybody has a microphone, too, through social media. So there's so many opportunities to be criticized. But you'll discover when God calls you to lead something and you're faithful to do it, often on the other side of the difficulty, there is a sweetness. I remember we discovered that. That ministry there in Austin became such a sweet ministry. In fact, some of our dearest friends in the world still are part of that church. But during that first year, it was a confusing time because my childhood Galilee was colliding with reality. A lot of us in this room today, we have similar stories. You grew up, you always prayed. As a child, you were always praying. And then somebody that you love got sick. And you began praying, Lord, heal this person. Lord, may your hand just touch them and may you heal them. And and then they passed away. And you couldn't understand why God didn't answer your prayer. Your childhood Galilee was colliding with reality. You had this dream for your life. God has me destined for great things. And by now in your life, everybody was supposed to know your name. And you were supposed to be set for life. But instead, you're really, really normal. I mean really, really normal. Like go to bed at 10 o'clock on Friday night, normal, you know? And you're like, how did this happen? Maybe you have your church story. Something happened to you, you got involved, and you got hurt. You walked into these doors hurt. Maybe you thought having a child would just fill in all the gaps in your life. I'm married now, and maybe what we ought to do to fill in those gaps is have a child. So you had a child, then two, then three, then four, and now you're part of the four no more club, and uh, you love them to death. Man, they filled in all the gaps all right. Let me tell you what, now you don't have any time for yourself. It's just a party and a hurricane. You had this idea. You had this thought in your mind about Christianity. If I come to God and I say, Jesus, take the wheel. If I do that, you like that? Thanks, I appreciate it. I'll be signing autographs after the service on that. so, so, So... but you thought, okay, if, if I just say, Jesus, will you take the wheel? Then all the problems would go away. It'd be like a Disney movie. We'll live happily ever after. But I still have struggle. And somewhere along the line, in most of our lives, we have this moment where our childhood Galilee collides with our reality. It's what we call a crisis of belief. Now, you may not realize this, but most great moments of faith are preceded by a crisis of belief. Moses, before he became the great liberator who led people out of bondage, he spent 40 years on the backside of the mountain working for his father-in-law. Nobody wants to work for your father-in-law. 40 years. I'm kidding. I have a great father-in-law, by the way. If he's watching this, love you, boy. (laughs) But before he led the people out of bondage, he, he had to push through his insecurities. 
David was anointed to be king of Israel as a teenager, yet before he ever became king, he was on the run for his life for several years. Ruth had to go through the pain of the death of her husband. Esther had to move from vanity to valor. Daniel had to survive the lion's den, and Peter had to face the darkness of his heart. Peter's denial had revealed a sinful heart who needed a suffering Messiah willing to die for Peter's sin so that his heart could be clean. Now, don't miss this. There's two betrayals in the Passion story, Peter and Judas. Both gripped with pride, apathy, and sin. Both men denied Christ in his hour of need. Both men refused to accept that God's plan was the cross. Both men had walked with Jesus at great personal sacrifice. Both men had been eyewitnesses of Jesus. Both men were natural leaders. Both men felt remorse, shame, and grief. Both stories relate to all of us because all of us struggle with sin ourselves. But the final chapters of their lives are vastly different. Judah's story is one of entitlement and treachery. He's forever remembered as a traitor who winds up taking his own life in tragedy. Peter's story ends with grace, forgiveness, and new beginning. You see, through the rain and through the darkness of the crucifixion story, your mind's eye can make out two silhouettes. One is that of Jesus dying on the cross, making an atonement for our sins. The other is that of a man bent over in prayer, asking God to forgive him for his denial and to cleanse him and to make all things new. Realizing what he had done, Peter broke down. His pride, his disobedience, his self-idolatry, it all poured out of him in the courtyard and he had a moment of genuine repentance and I believe it was right then that Peter found the real thing. He found Jesus, Messiah, Savior and Lord. And that's where his story changes. That's where he quits being self-absorbed. That's when he quits living a life captured by the darkness of his heart. That's when Peter truly comes alive in all ways. Just a few months later, he's preaching the Sermon of Pentecost where 3,000 new believers come to Christ and the church is launched. He becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. He writes two books of the Bible. If you're in the crisis of belief today, I want you to know that it's real. Push through faith. Push through. Grab a hold of the promises of God because it's all real. God really does exist. He really does love you. He really did send His Son to die for you. He really can save you. He really can use you. I know there's a lot of confusion sometimes, and I know there's a lot of different thoughts sometimes, but don't ever lose sight of the core of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ, who loves you so much that He died for you, and He can make all things new when you place your life in Him. Push through. Push through to faith. And don't settle for those things that look like the real thing but lack substance. Don't settle for anything less than the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the real thing. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? I'm going to be here at the front today, and if there's anything that I can pray with you about, 
It's always my joy to pray with you. If today needs to be the day where you place your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, come see me. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be here during the last song. I'll be here after the service as well. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that we have seen in Scripture today, the story of Peter and his search for that which is real. And Lord, I I think we all admit that sometimes it's confusing to find out what is real. And so I pray that we might never lose sight of the gospel because that's what's real. That's why we're here. That's what defines us. That's what leads us. Lord, that's our vision, to live out the gospel. And so I pray that we might experience the realness of the gospel in every area of our lives. I pray for those that find themselves in a crisis of belief today, that the crisis will not be a moment where they turn and run, but it will be a moment where they push forward in faith. And may they discover the sweetness and joy that are found on the other side. And we continue to persevere. We continue to go forward. And we keep our eyes on Jesus and nothing else. Lord, I thank you for your abundant love. And I pray that we might feel it and know it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.